Verge podcast with Real Lit. Neil, we've got Tim Liu on the show today. For listeners not familiar with Tim, who is he? I am thrilled to have Tim on the show today. He is the co-founder and CEO of Senti Bio, a company that he co-founded in 2016. Um, Tim was an associate professor at MIT for about a decade in the departments of biological engineering and electrical engineering and computer science. Um, he was on the SAB, uh, scientific advisory board of a number of biotech companies, um, a ton of experience in the space. He has his MD from Harvard Medical School, a PhD in electrical and biomedical engineering from MIT. So needless to say, he's got a wealth of experience uh, that combines these sort of disciplines of the biological sciences and computer sciences. And I'm excited to dive into what they're building at Senti, because that sort of sits right at the intersection of all these disciplines. It's not unusual for synthetic biologists to sound like computer engineers. Tim certainly fits that model. How do you think that shapes the drug discovery and development approach? Does it somehow make it more deliberate? I, I would think so um, in, in many ways. I think the, the language that synthetic biologists use are, are, are really one of a programming you know, language. And you know, I think you know, what they talk about is, is this idea of engineering biology, right? And, and doing it in sort of a very logical order. And of course, it's never quite that easy, right? Biology isn't inherently messy. So it's not like you just, you, you write a program and, you know, a, a computer script, you know, runs it. Um, there, there's all these myriad of interactions. But I think from a synthetic biology perspective, that, that's the goal, right? To be able to sort of write some sort of, you know, code in, in GNA or, or program cells to perform in a specific way. And I'm excited to talk to Tim because, you know, Senti is developing sort of, I guess what they call it, intelligent medicines. Um, you know, we, we could debate, you know, what intelligent actually means, but, you know, they're building in th these, what they call gene circuits, right? So they're like logic gates. So, um, I, you know, I guess in sort of like a, a dumbed down fashion, you know, what I can relate to is it's sort of, sort of analogous to like writing a formula in Excel, right? It's like, if then, right? So if this happens, then do that, right? So if you, if the cell encounters, you know, this antigen, then kill the cell. cell. If it doesn't, then don't kill the cell type of thing. But, you know, that's sort of a, a rudimentary understanding. So I'm excited to talk to Tim about what these logic circuits, you know, entail and what that means for the development of their therapies, right? Does it make their therapy safer? Does it make them more, you know, efficacious? Maybe some combination thereof. So I'm excited to dive into a little bit of, of some, some of the, you know, preclinical you know, detail that they've seen. What are you hoping to hear from Tim today? Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to hear how they're using their platform, which is which is based on, you know, allogeneic cells, uh, specifically natural killer cells uh, that are engineered with these gene circuits. So I, I'd like to understand the, the platform technology, why they chose NK cells, what these gene circuits actually do. Um, you know, they're, they're targeting uh, both solid and liquid tumors, but they've really done actually a masterful job of partnering led by their chief operating officer, Kurt Herberts. Uh, and have partnerships with Spark and Blue Rock in areas outside of oncology. So they really have developed this fundamental platform technology, which could be 
broadly applicable applicable in the fields of cell and gene therapy. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about that. You know, as a sort of a former BD person myself, I, I always love to hear about the partnering strategy. So I want to talk to Tim a little bit about that, but really excited to understand this idea of, of, of programming gene circuits and what that means for the development of novel therapies. Well, if you're all set, let's do it. Tim, I'd like to welcome you to the show today and say a big thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Neil, for having me. Appreciate it. My pleasure. So today we are going to talk about SentiBio, which is a synthetic biology company uh, based on a platform technology that you're developing, uh, which you describe as Gene Circuit, which I'm really excited to dive into. Uh, as listeners of this show know, I love talking about technologies that are bringing science fiction to life. And it certainly sounds like what you're developing at Senti was in the not too distant past, probably thought to be science fiction. But today it is very much science fact. So really excited to dive into some of the nuances there. But before we jump into some of those details, I'd love to start with a little bit of your background. You were an associate professor at MIT for over a decade. You worked uh, where your work straddled biological engineering, uh, electrical engineering, computer science. I'd venture to guess 10 years ago that was a strange combination of disciplines to pull together. Can you talk a little bit about your interest in those areas and how they all came together? Yeah, thanks, Neil. My um, original interest was computer programming. Uh, I was very interested in trying to take a you know physical machine and figure out how to do it, do your bidding through, through through designing you know computer programs. There, what really piqued my interest in biology was uh, first time I heard about the Human Genome Project, as as well as the sort of like emerging field of synthetic biology. This was in the early two thousands, and what that allowed me to really start thinking about was that perhaps biology could be programmed one day as well. And, you know, at the time, I think, you know, it was still relatively um, challenging to think about that being possible. But over the last 20 years, you know, the cost of DNA sequencing, the cost of DNA synthesis have continued to drop. And our ability to, you know, read and write DNA has really increased at a tremendous, tremendous scale. And so as a result, it's actually given us the toolkit now to figure out how to design, you know, new DNA codes, how to stick them into different cells and then see how they function. So I think over the last you know, 10, 15 years, you've seen, you know, I think a really large growth of interest in people trying to figure out how do I start programming biological systems? How do I try to figure out, you know, how natural biological systems are wired up on their own? And then can I basically create new programs that carry out some function of interest? And so I think today, you know, my background wouldn't be so unique or or, or special. Um, but back in the day, it was certainly exciting to think about how do we take some of the engineering mindset and, and approaches that we've applied to the computer systems, mechanical systems, et cetera, and really start applying that to the biological systems um, that, that we've come to really focus on. And, and Tim, in many ways, SentiBio is full of the language of electrical engineering and computer science. As a synthetic biologist, I mean, how do you think about um, the concept of engineering biology and, and how does that yeah. change the way you will, your, your approach to developing novel therapeutics? Yeah, and I think um, it's important to point out that, it, you know, the language that's being used here is being used primarily as a way of describing and also, in some cases, abstracting away. Um, the way we do design. So what I mean by that is we use these sort of languages to help us communicate the types of behaviors and circuits that we're building. 
Um, it doesn't change the fact that at the end of the day, we're still manipulating DNA, we're doing genetic engineering, et cetera. But the reason why we find this sort of language useful is the same reason why computer engineers and computer programmers use this language, because it allows you to go from very, very low level things. You know, in the electrical analogy, it's, you know, how are these electrons moving from one place to another? So there's a lot of physics behind them that you need to describe. There's a next level up of then like, how do I actually build this thing, this physical machine? And then there's the higher level of somebody typing on the computer and writing some, some piece of code. And so for all of those three different layers to work together, there needs to be some shared language of how the system works. And so I think that's a concept that's really important um, in biology, and especially because biology is so complex. You know, natural biological systems aren't really human. They're obviously not human designed. You know, they're, they're guided by evolution over time and evolution is messy. So, you know, the way one gene in, interacts with another gene in our cells, there's no clear wiring diagram that exists there. And so if you wanna to try to figure out what's there, number one, you know, you need to be able to look at a lot of um, data at once and process that. And then on the flip side, which is what we're doing here at Senti, if you wanna design something, you could either try to just copy the way biology does it, but at some point, it probably exceeds our sort of human intuition on, on the, you know, how these things actually function. Or you could try to purposely try to build in, um, you know, build the, build the modules in such a way that you think they're gonna actually be more engineerable and stackable later on. And so that's why we try to use that language here at Senti because it helps us, you know, remind ourselves that, you know, ultimately our goal is to build, you know, perhaps more complex programs, more uh, optimized programs. And if we're gonna need to do that, then we need sort of human-based uh, ways of um, describing those to each other and to the outside world. So, so Tim, let's let's drill down into into some of that using that that language of programming. So, in many ways, what you talk about is this concept of of programming gene circuits into living cells. Yeah. Can we can we or can you first start off and and talk about what you mean by a gene circuit? Yeah. So, a gene circuit is again, you know, a form of uh, description. Um, but basically, what we mean by a gene circuit, typically, it's a a piece of DNA that we insert into a cell. That DNA is encoded with multiple instructions that tell the cell what to do. And those instructions are in the form of um, typically multiple genes, right? So, you, and the reason for that is it's not really that interesting to just put in uh, a construct that just, a DNA construct that just makes one protein at a very high level. That's fairly straightforward to do. And we've known how to do that for quite a long time through the tools of genetic engineering. But if you start wanting to build a cell that can sense what it, what's around it, a cell that can make decisions, a cell that actually you know hits multiple targets at the same time, then you actually need to be able to control how much of a gene is being made, um, when that when those genes are expressed, and that sort of dynamic behavior really comes from interactions between genes or genetic components. So simply speaking, I think a genetic circuit is a piece of DNA that has multiple genes on it. And it's been designed so that those genes, you know, interact with each other in such a way that it gives rise to, you know, desired function. Um, the analogy I typically like to use, it's very, again, very similar to, you know, like an electrical circuit that you people may have played with in, in high school. Um, you know, you have your resistor, that's like a, one component, but if you hook that resistor now up to a battery and to a light bulb, it actually has a different behavior. Um, and so it's really that full circuit that we're putting together that we're inserting to the cell. 
And, and so those circuits consist of different, I guess what I would call gate functions, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit about those types of gates that you've built in. And so if I understand correctly, you know, there, there's a not gate or an or gate or an if then gate. And so if there's some sort of biological activity, it triggers one of these gates, which then um, allows the cell to act or not act in a specific way. Could you, could you talk a little bit about how that, it, how that works? Of course. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I would just, the way we think about gene circuits, gene circuits is a general term. Um, the gene circuit can actually uh, be designed to do several different functions. Um, so maybe I'll just sort of give a higher level overview first before I go into logic gates. So for example, we can design a gene circuit to detect or sense things, right? So we want sensors. Just like, you know, the computer I'm talking to you now has a microphone. We want to engineer the cell to be able to detect what's going on. So there are certain elements of that gene circuit that basically their function is to detect the environment or detect something special in the body. So those are sensors. Then there's a second part, which is, like you said, logic gates, right? We want to take all that information into the cell. We want to decide what to do with that. And, and that process of decision-making can be described as logic. And I'll, and I'll go into that in a little bit. And then once the cell has made a decision, for example, let's say you have a cell that you put into the body, you want it to kill a cancer cell. The cell actually needs to decide, okay, I need to kill this cell I'm co coming in contact with, or I need to spare this other healthy cell that I'm coming in contact with. And so there's the output side of the world, right? And there's many biological outputs one can have. And so again, you can encode multiple genes off these gene circuits that hit target A, target B, target C. So those are different outputs. Um, so those are, you know, the types of things gene circuits can do. And like you said, a core component of what gene circuits can do is that idea of logic. Um, so I'll give you an example of a logic gate that we are designing here at Senti. It's what we call the NOT gate. We call it a NOT gate, N-O-T gate, um, because what it does is it protects healthy cells from being killed. So basically what we're telling our NK cells are, that we're putting to the body is do not kill these healthy cells. And that's what the NOT gate does. So the way it essentially works is we put an NK cell, a natural killer cell, you know, into the body, and it's constantly sensing um, what antigens are on, you know, the cell surface that, that uh, what, what antigens are on every target cell it's going after. So if the target cell has a cancer antigen, it kills it. But if it has a healthy tissue antigen, it doesn't kill it. Um, and so that's the type of logical behavior that we can put into these sort of products by designing these logic gates. The reason why this is powerful, if you compare it to, for example, chemotherapy, which is probably the most untargeted, one of the most untargeted ways we treat cancer, chemotherapy goes in and it's sort of a carpet bomb. It kills off many, many cells, healthy and cancer cells. Here, what we're trying to do with this knot gate is make the targeting much more precise so that we can spare the healthy cells while still killing the cancer cells effectively. So in many ways, this is a, this is a very precision-based you know, medicine approach. Um, t t Tim, you, you mentioned uh, NK or natural killer cells. Just to, to take a step back um, for our listeners, can you can you describe what a NK or natural killer cell is? Yeah. Uh, so a natural killer cell or NK cell is a certain type of immune cell in the body. Um, naturally, those cells are you know floating around and they're responsible for getting rid of sick cells. Um, and those cells could be sick for a variety of reasons. They could be cancer cells. They could be cells that are infected by a virus, et cetera, et cetera. So basically their job is to, you know, 
um, recognize if a, if a cell is stressed out or, you know, kind of messed up and, and kill it. Now, it's not the only immune cell in the body. There are obviously other immune cells. You know, people have probably heard of T cells as well that are important in the immune system as well. But we like NK cells or natural killer cells quite a lot um, because of several reasons. One is, you know, as the name sort of implies, they are natural born killers. Um, so it's not that difficult to turn that killing activity in can against cancer. Um, two is there have been a lot of clinical studies on natural killer cells in, in cancer that have shown that uh, it has the potential to be very safe uh, in patients compared to you know, other cell therapies that have been attempted. Um, and thirdly, um, these cells can be used in an off-the-shelf and what we call allogeneic fashion. That term essentially means that you don't have to take the patient's own natural killer cells um, and, and give it back to them. You can take natural killer cells from a healthy donor, you know, do the engineering that you want, and then put it into the actual patient. Um, the reason that this is potentially very helpful is that it simplifies the manufacturing process, potentially makes it much more scalable and accessible. So those are some of the key reasons why we like natural killer cells uh, for our gene circuits. Um, even though our gene circuits, like I mentioned earlier, are sort of these general programs, we can put them into any other cell type that we care about. But at Senti, we're focused on these natural killer cells for our internal programs. And Tim, I, I want to spend a few minutes and talk about the allogeneic approach here. Um, was that a strategic decision that you made at Senti? Was that based on the biology that led you in that direction? And, and just for our listeners, the allogeneic, as you said, is sort of off the shelf um, versus autologous, which are cells from 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 the patient. Um, so yeah, I'd love to understand your thinking behind that. Yeah, it was primarily a strategic thinking um, that led us to uh, come up with an allogeneic product. Um, as I mentioned, you know, when we started Senti, it was really about building this engineering platform for all cell and gene therapies. And we've shown at Senti that we can actually build gene circuits for T cells, for natural killer cells, for iPSC derived cells, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's no technical reason why we can't work in other cell types. However, in terms of thinking about our own programs and pipeline and the future of cell and gene therapies, you know, we wanted to go with a cell type that had, you know, good safety track record already and would just be much more accessible to people, um, the patient population that's out there, both in terms of, you know, time to delivery, the potential costs associated with making these products, the burden on the patient as well. And, you know, there's a lot of things that are potentially beneficial if you can make an, an allogeneic product because it essentially really reduces the, um, the supply chain and manufacturing issues associated with, you know, like you mentioned, the autologous therapies, which are much more labor intensive to produce. Yeah, and, and and Tim, let's let's talk about the production of these um, these cells. Is it more complex to manufacture your cell therapies relative to existing CAR Ts or other types of cell therapies? Well, I think in, if we speak in general terms, autologous cell therapies certainly are quite complex to manufacture because you have to obtain the cells from the actual patient. You have to ship them to a, a facility typically and get it engineered in a very short period of time and then do all the QC checks before shipping it back to the patient in time. So there's a, um, a time-based complexity associated with any autologous therapy. Allogeneic therapies, if you can achieve them, um, you know, potentially get rid of that issue because you can stockpile um, the drug and use it as needed. However, with allogeneic therapies, you know, you have to think about how do you expand the cells? You know, how do you make, you know, many, many batches of the cells? So that's not trivial. How do you freeze the cells? 
How do you ensure the health and quality of those cells after they're thawed before delivering to patients? So there is process development and, and optimization that you need to do. Um, but I think we've you know, made a lot of progress and the field as well has made a lot of progress in ensuring that is true. In terms of, you know, if you compared Senti's allogeneic uh, therapies versus, you know, other folks who are developing allogeneic therapies, I wouldn't say that ours are any substantially more complex. Um, at, the, at the end of the day, what we are delivering is our set of genes into the cells. And that's similar to how, you know, previous products have been made and attempted. So there's a lot of uh, learnings um, and, and portability of, of those uh, previous experiences. Now for us, you know, we do oftentimes want to build special assays and ways of monitoring that the product <clears throat> is what it is. And so we certainly do customize um, how we do manufacturing, but I don't think it's substantially more complex or, or than other uh, short approaches. And, and Tim, do you do the manufacturing in-house or is that something that you work with a, a, a contract manufacturer on? Yeah, so we uh, internally at Senti have actually built a our own internal team for um, what we call process development uh, and, and technical operations so that we can uh, make these cells in-house and QC them, uh, make sure that they're, they're good. Um, there are certain elements to the process that, you know, if there's, a, if there's a contract manufacturer that can do it more efficiently than us, we, you know, we will consider that. Um, but in general, you know, Senti has control over the, the overall manufacturing process and the know-how that, that's required. Great. And, and what do you know about how the cells perform based on some of the preclinical studies that you've completed to date? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so let's go back to the example of the uh, natural killer cell that has the knot gate. Um, one of the key areas that we want to use that in is in acute myeloid leukemia, uh, which we call AML. So one of the key challenges in AML is that you, know, you have patients who unfortunately um, have, you know, basically, you know, blood cancer. And uh, many of the existing drugs that target uh, those blood cancer cells also kill off the healthy blood cells, right? So it's, it, you always sort of straddling this concern that if I treat the tumor or the cancer really aggressively, I'm also gonna hurt the bone marrow or hurt the, the ability of the patient to produce proper blood or proper hematopoietic cells um, or, you know, immune cells. So where the knot gate is being applied in that process is we've essentially engineered natural killer cells that can effectively recognize and kill uh, cancer cells that express a specific set of tumor antigens or tumor targets. And then the knot gate is designed to protect the healthy bone marrow stem cell, also known as the hematopoietic stem cell. And it does that by recognizing a specific antigen that we call safety antigen, and it basically it's a don't eat me signal for those cells. So that's how the knock functions there. So we've now tested this, um, these natural killer cells in a variety of models. Uh, we re most recently published data at the uh, American Society for Hematology ASH conference back in December, where we basically showed number one, that this design um, is able to, you know, kill AML cancer cells effectively, both in a test in the lab, as well as uh, in multiple different animal models. So that's on the killing side. You want to be able to kill, obviously, kill those cancer cells. But it's also able to protect those healthy cells. So what we did was to take healthy human donors. We were able to isolate those healthy blood stem cells. And we showed that the knot gate was able to protect those stem cells from being killed in a variety of assays. Uh, so we've, you know, we're pretty excited about that data. We think it's, you know, uh, opening up the door for, like you said, precision targeting of, of cancer. 
And uh, there's a lot of applications beyond AML that we're looking at now. You know, hopefully if we can move those forward uh, into the clinic for those other indications as well. Yeah, that's very, very cool. You, you mentioned th this concept of the don't eat me signal. And I remember during my days at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, we funded uh, a similar program. Uh, it came out of Irv Weissman's lab at Stanford, uh, targeting uh, CD47. And, and we basically called it, it was the don't eat me signal. Um, and it was really interesting that technology was spun out to 47 Inc. and these companies acquired by Gilead. So a, a, a really nice story. But yeah, uh, br brings back some, some, some memories of a program I was uh, close to. Um, so, so Tim, then if I, if I think about then how your, you know, therapies or potential therapies are different than what's being done today, right? There's a lot of therapies that enlist the immune system to fight against cancer in, in a variety of different ways. Um, so the, the advantage is, if I'm understanding correctly, of having the, the sort of type of, I guess you call it intelligence or, or gated logic built into these cells is, you know, the, the idea is that they make the, the therapies potentially safer and more effective. Is, is, am I thinking about that correct? Yeah. So by the way, going back to what you just described, the CD47, that's like a natural example of a donating signal, which is really exciting that the body works like that already. And so in our case, yeah, you're right. The not gate that we're designing here is basically an artificial version of that. And so we're taking, you know, what biology does already and basically, you know, figuring out how to, how to apply it ourselves. So I think that's a really good, a good use, good example that you just brought up. Um, but yeah, to answer uh, your specific question here, um, I think safety and efficacy in, in drugs is really intimately linked with each other, especially in oncology. I think for almost all the cancer drugs we have, you know, we're always threading the needle between, you know, I want to treat this cancer more aggressively. However, I'm running into some sort of toxicity that's limiting it. So the vision here for this not gate um, is basically how do we decouple the safety and efficacy issue? Right. And so if you're, you know, if you have a drug that, you know, you know, hits the healthy cells 30 percent of the time and hits the cancer cells 70 percent of the time. You, there's going to be a limit on how aggressively you can treat that patient, unfortunately, because you have to protect the health. You have to limit the, the collateral damage on the healthy cells. But if you can make a product that says, you know, that's basically zero percent or five percent um, on the killing of the healthy cells and 90 percent, 95 percent killing of the uh, cancer cells, you can treat those patients much more aggressively. You can dose more frequently. You can dose at higher levels. And hopefully that will translate into a stronger efficacy signal. So that's how we view the world. That safety, without safety, you can't get efficacy in this in this system. And and certainly when we're doing our product designs, you know, we're trying to make the maximally effective product, knowing that the the safety elements or the precision elements that we're building in allow us to actually go after certain targets more aggressively or build in more potent product profiles. And, and let, let's talk about the development timelines for your lead candidates. You, you, you've publicly stated you expect IND filings for your lead product candidates, uh, Senti 202 and, and 301 in 2023. Could you give us the highlights of, of, of each of those programs? Yeah. Thank you for asking about that. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, Senti 202 is an allergenic CAR-NK program um, that's uh, aimed to address acute myeloid leukemia. It contains the not gate that we mentioned earlier, which, which whose goal is to prevent the killing of healthy cells. It also actually contains an additional element, which we didn't really talk about in detail, which is another type of logic gate called the OR gate. An OR gate kills a tumor if it expresses, you know, tumor antigen A or tumor antigen B. In this case, uh, you know, we've identified CD33 or FLT3 as the tumor targets. 
And the, the goal of the OR gate is a bit different than the NOT gate. You know, whereas the NOT gate is meant to protect healthy cells, the OR gate is meant to maximize the killing of the cancer cells. The reason why we went after CD33 or FLT3 is that these are both targets that are well known in AML. And if you can kill any tumor cell that carries either CD33 or FLT3 or both, then you're naturally going to potentially be much more effective at, at clearing out the tumors. So that's essentially, you know, the core of what Senti202 is. Um, and, and we aim to you know, bring that into clinic, uh, you know, for AML patients. Uh, Senti301 is a different program. It's targeted towards liver cancer. Um, the goal there is to, number one, kill liver cancer cells, but to also transform the tumor microenvironment that uh, is found in liver cancer. And so when I say tumor microenvironment, it's basically, you know, in the tumor and surrounding the tumor, the tumor finds a way of shielding itself from the body's own immune system. Oftentimes, it sort of creates a suppressive environment so that any, you know, any T cell, NK cell, B cell that's going to that environment basically gets shut off and it's sort of ineffective. It's sort of the, the force field that's being created. So what we're trying to do with the Senti301 program is to penetrate that force field. So number one, we have our allogeneic NK cells. We've engineered them with one of these uh, CAR receptors, chimeric antigen receptors, going after a target called GPC3. So when it recognizes GPC3, it you know is able to target those cancer cells and kill them. But in addition to that, it actually contains the ability to actually generate um, two different cytokines. You know, cytokines are these proteins that stimulate the immune system. Um, one of the cytokines is IL-15 which is important for stimulating NK cells as well as, well as other immune cells. IL-12 is another one um, that is well known to be very, very uh, stimulatory of the immune system, including for T cells, B cells, you know, dendritic cells, et cetera. All of the cells that are important in triggering a strong immune response. So our goal with Senti301 is to be able to not only kill liver cancer cells, but to produce these cytokines inside of the tumor and really try to knock that force field down from multiple angles. And Tim, I'm, I'm always curious, how did you go about selecting the, the indications of, of AML um, and, and liver cancer? Yeah, it's a great question. I think what we wanted to try to do is match um, areas of high unmet medical needs so that you know we wanted to obviously solve a problem that no one else was currently able to solve. Uh, so that was one. So we spent a lot of time talking to, uh, you know, um, key opinion leaders, physicians, you know, other drug companies in the space to really understand what the gaps were. Uh, and so we segregated, you know, the world essentially to two major buckets. One part of the oncology space are cancers that don't have like a clean antigen to go after, a clean target to go after, um, where the sort of logic gate concept can really make a lot of hay. Uh, because in, you know, the vast majority of cancers, you can't just find a single target, uh, this sort of the silver bullet target to go after. It's not that simple, but once you have the logic gate that can go after multiple targets, it sort of simplifies you know, the product and potentially makes it more efficacious and safe, safe if you can achieve it. Um, so that's where you know, AML sort of popped out as one of the indications. Again, there's no perfect antigen there. Um, and so we thought the logic gates could really make an impact there. Um, we like the fact that AML patients, uh, sorry, AML is a liquid tumor, so it's a little bit simpler um, of, a, of a study to go into. Um, and, uh, you know, the ability to track responses in patients by, you know, taking blood out, et cetera, has some potential benefits as well. So I think AML was a good first use case uh, for our logic technology. 
We do have other programs looking into solid tumors like colorectal cancer that we're working on with similar logic gating programs. Um, the second category is, you know, solid tumors like liver cancer, where there's in a target that's known like GPC-3, but there's been, you know, insufficient responses even after going after those targets because of that force field or that suppressive tumor microenvironment. And so we thought that the gene circuits could really make an impact uh, in that area. And so again, that was essentially looking at, you know, the intersection between unmet need versus what we thought was feasible for our first studies. Yeah, and then through partnerships, you're actually applying your technology to a broader array of, of non-oncology applications. You've, you've had some great partnerships that have been announced recently. Can you, can you give some sense of the deals you, you've made? And, and in particular, just being a, a former BD person myself, the, the strategy behind these deals and, and partnering out you know, non-oncology you know, assets? Or indications? Yeah, it's funny. One of our investors in the Series B was Intel Capital. And so one of the taglines we sort of use internally, <laughs> although I don't think it's ever been officially vetted by Intel, is we sort of want to be the Intel inside of, um, you know, cell and gene therapies of the future. I mean, the, the types of programs that we're writing now uh, for our natural killer cells, really just one sliver of what's possible. Um, and, and really, we're directing against cancer because we think it makes a lot of sense for a company of our size and scale to do that. But I think that's, you know, if that's all we did, it would be missing the power of the technology. Um, so our approach so far to partnerships has been, you know, outside of oncology, you know, so that we're not creating, you know, direct competition with ourselves. And especially in other cell types or other gene therapy types, we want to find the best partners out there who will be responsible for downstream manufacturing and clinical development because they have that expertise and infrastructure that we can work together with. Um, and in these collaborations, really what we're doing is we're bringing our know-how and our platform and our IP to the table where we can design genetic circuits that overcome, you know, some of the key issues in the field today. Um, so the two partnerships that we've publicly announced, uh, one is with Spark, who's obviously a leader in the uh, AAV gene therapy space, basically using adeno-associated viruses to deliver genes uh, into the body. Um, they're a pioneer in that area. However, one of the challenges in AAV gene therapy that has been, uh, you know, I think becoming clear over the last multiple years is how do you get these AAV gene therapies to be highly specific for a cell type of interest? Um, certain diseases may only take place in a certain cell type. And so you may want, you may not want to hit all the other cell types in the body. And so what Senti is doing there is designing gene circuits that have sensors in them and that can detect what cell type am I in? Should I be on or should I be off? Uh, so that's where we're applying that gene circuit know-how and design platform. Um, with our second partnership, this is with Blue Rock slash Bayer. Um, you know, they're taking a really you know lead, leading position in IPSC, regenerative medicine uh, type applications. And so similarly there, we're designing genetic circuits that are helpful for outfitting those stem cell based uh, products for function um, in the body. It's very cool. And, and so, I mean, this is very much what you're building at Senti is, is this idea of a, you know, a platform, you know, biotech company um, in, in many ways, or I guess, you know, e even maybe to be more correct, a, a tech bio company. Um, and I, I do, I always love asking this question, um, you know, assuming that you do consider yourself sort of in this group of, of tech bio, how do, how do you think about that? I mean, what, 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 is, what does that term mean to you? What do you think that means in terms of you know building a company, uh, not just in terms of the technology which, which we've talked about, but also the culture as well? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, we like to think of ourselves in that 
vein of what you just described, because a lot of the underlying workflow that we're doing at Santi is engineering based. Um, there's a ton of computational work, machine learning, uh, automation, you know, et cetera, that is, is being built into our design processes. And I think number one, the sort of the mindset that we want to instill in people here is that, you know, every time we design a product or design a gene circuit, it's not like we're going to be one and done. Like, not only do we want to make that a great product that we can test in patients, but two is we actually want to learn from that design experience. You know, we go through all these designs, you know, a lot of them don't work. A lot of them do work to varying degrees. And that's all super valuable information that if you analyze the data correctly, if you capture the data in a quantitative way, you can learn about what the design rules are. Going back to what we talked about in the beginning, like biological design rules are complex. They're not simple. And so we need that sort of data so that we can crunch the numbers and really understand now the next time I do it, can I be 50% better than I did last time? And so it's really about instilling that, that um, number one mindset and ethos into the company, but also building out the infrastructure so that you can capture that sort of data and analyze that data in a quantitative way. Um, that's super important to us. So I think that's hopefully you know how we think about it. And, and the reason for that is ultimately we wanna be that platform that can be more and more efficient over time. Hopefully one day, you know, I started off as an experimentalist in this field, pipetting stuff. I hopefully less, less and less pipetting happens in the future, more and more computer design happens because it'll just really change the economics, the speed by and, and, and the efficiency by which we can design new drugs, which I think we all want to do to try to tackle, you know, all the diseases that are out there. And, and Tim, you, you bring back some, some memories of when I used to pipette stuff, um, it seems like forever ago. And that's actually kind of what drove me out of the lab, I think, um, <laughs> among other things. Um, one day, hopefully we will move more and more away. I won't say we will get, be able to get rid of it uh, 100%, but I think, you know, we should be trying to minimize the amount of sort of just rote trial and error that's being done in the field. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Um, you know, one, one other question I, I would to drill into, you know, we, we have a lot of, you know, young entrepreneurs who are looking to build uh, companies uh, who are listeners to this show. As, as you think about the composition of, of the team, um, you know, do, do you, do you have, you know, the traditional sort of like biologists and chemists, and then do you have hardware and software engineers? And is, is it emerging of those two? Are you more or less weighted to, you know, one discipline versus the other? I'm, I'm just always really curious how these teams sort of come together. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, our, our team composition has morphed over time. I think in the early days we were, you know, in the process of transitioning these technologies out of academia figuring out how to really, you know, we sort of refer to this as robustifying them, right? What's required for a publication in, in nature of science is very different than what needs to go into a human. So you need to make sure these technologies work well. So I think in the early days, it was a lot of um, synthetic biology, molecular biologist folks that we brought on board. You know, as the company, you know, got its footing and figured out the platform, we did start bringing in a lot of, what would say, more infrastructure building people, you know, folks who are building that, you know, software layer and as well as the computational and, and, and automation expertise within the company to, so that, you know, at least from our perspective, start capturing the data and generating data and analyzing data in a way that we found would be useful. And that's, that's unique to what we're doing here at Senti may not be applicable to all drug companies. And then certainly as we matured further, as we started to bring programs forward, bringing in biologists who knew how to do the relevant assays to test for, like you, like you asked earlier, efficacy and safety and all those other features, um, as well as then the people who know how to advance these forward, you know, the manufacturing team, 
a, you know, massage gene therapy space, it's not trivial to do that. So we've had to bring in a lot of that uh, know-how and expertise. You know, I do anticipate as we get closer to the clinic, we're going to continue to expand, you know, the folks who are actually going to execute the clinical study. So it's always a transition process that you have to build. I think we're always hiring and adapting the team. Um, we've been really proud at Senti that we've, uh, I think, built a, a great culture here centered around this idea of, um, you know, gene circuits, you know, be able to potentially transform the way we use therapeutics. So everyone here is, is quite passionate about that. And I hope, you know, other other budding entrepreneurs can also, you know, uh, bring their, their novel technologies into the field. You know, the key thing is to find, you know, great uh, folks that you can actually work with. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult process to do this. And so you got to find people who you really actually like working with and will we'll stick with you long uh, through good times as well as bad times. And, and Tim, along those lines, and I guess on a slightly, slightly more personal note, I mean, what, what uh, enabled you or what motivated you to make the jump from academia to, to industry and, and to founding and building your own company? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, <laughs> you can probably tell like a lot of my uh, thinking is, 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 um, is uh, looking at comparable trends or analogies that have happened in the past. If you think about like the semiconductor world and how that transformed our lives in the last 50 years, there was a time point at which what really drove that was uh, something called Moore's Law. It was named after Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel. And basically, he, you know, he drew on a graph that you know, he could predict every 18 months or every two years, the number of transistors um, on a chip would basically double. Um, so that would basically meant that we were on an exponential rise in terms of our computing power. Right. And that's obviously what drove this, you know, information revolution around us. And, you know, that was a once in a lifetime thing. You know, the people who figured that was coming <laughs> were able to make tremendous impacts and build long lasting companies. That was super exciting. I think similarly in biology, you know, when we started seeing that, you know, the, the, the trends in DNA synthesis and sequencing were advancing at the rates that they are, um, to me, that just represented an opportunity that I have to be involved in. So, you know, I started off my career in academia at MIT and had a great experience there with the community there. But I just felt that there had to be a, a company that was going to be in charge of or not in charge of, but, um, you know, have a chance at being one of the leaders in this translation of this technology to the real world. And I wanted to be, you know, involved in that. So that's really what led to the founding of Senti together with, you know, my great co-founders and really pulled me away from the academic world into doing this. Yeah, and, and and Tim, I you know I, I wholeheartedly agree, and that's you know one of the things I love about my job is is th this notion of this sort of you know this wave that we're riding um, in, in sort of the biological sciences and sort of the next evolution of how drugs are, are developed, and you know tech uh, and and Senti is is really at the forefront of that, and you know I, I love being an investor in this space, and it's just it's so cool, and I'm just so privileged to have a chance to have conversations with with folks like yourself. Um, so, Tim, with that, I know we could probably talk for the next, you know, four days straight about some of these topics, but I do want to be cognizant of your time and uh, say a big thank you for uh, for joining me on the show today. Yeah, no, thanks so much for the good questions and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Happy to uh, to reconnect with you or uh, any of your listeners in the future. So thanks a lot. Well, Neil, what did you think? I thought it was a great conversation. I mean, it was, I thought, really fascinating to talk to Tim about these logic gates. I, I haven't heard of any, really anyone else doing th this this type of gated logic and 
you know, programming them into cell at this concept of a not gate or an or gate or an if then gate, you know, you heard Tim describe all of that stuff. And it's, it's really, uh, I think really interesting, uh, the impact that that could have on making these NK cells, uh, much more targeted, um, to destroy cancer cells specifically and basically leaving healthy cells alone. So, uh, you heard us talk a little bit about this, but the you know the 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 concept would be that these cells could be not only safer but also more efficacious. Um, so I think there's it's really promising. It sounds like they have some some compelling you know early data. It'll be really I think interesting to see what happens as they move into the clinic. Senti's focusing on developing allogeneic cell therapies. Do you think the whole field is going to move in this direction? Oh, that's a really good question, Danny. I. I'm not sure that it will necessarily move in this direction. You heard Tim talk about the benefits of the allogeneic based cell therapies versus autologous. And a lot of it comes down to um, scalability, how they're manufactured, certainly the cost of goods in particular, right? While, you know, allogeneic approaches could be much cheaper to manufacture and produce than, than autologous. I do, however, think that it's going to be indication specific. In other words, I think we will see that the autologous approach maybe is actually a more effective way to go for certain indications, uh, specifically indications that have a smaller patient population, for example, whereas an allogeneic-based approach, you can really benefit from the scalability, from the reduced cost. And so that's going to be probably the only way to go for much larger patient population. So there's a lot of debate whether, you know, which approach is going to win. And I don't view it that way. I, I think, I think each of them has benefits in different indications. I think the example Tim offered of the company's AML targeted therapy was interesting because it's a reminder about the importance of not just making therapies more effective, but safer, preventing it from hurting healthy cells. Uh, what does this say to you about the potential for applying this technology? Yeah, I mean, that that's critical, obviously. I mean, you not only want them safe, but you need them effective. You know, there's there's a lot of other approaches out there, uh, bi-specific antibodies, for example, you know, which are, you, you know, targeting two, two antigens on a, on a, you know, uh, a tumor cell, for example. So there, there are different approaches to immunotherapies and to biologics that are trying to be much more targeted than, you know, what has existed in the past. And, you know, you heard Tim talk about chemotherapy as like the, the blunt instrument, right? And us, you know, th that is still very much a standard of care in a lot of, you know, cancer indications. But a lot of these novel sort of immunotherapies, cell and gene therapies, right? This is all sort of in the field of precision medicine. Um, and a lot of it has to do with, again, you heard Tim talk about this concept of the tumor microenvironment, um, the ability of tumors to grow resistant, right? So how do some of these novel approaches uh, overcome some of those challenges? So, um, you know, the, these, these are still major challenges that need to be overcome, but I think there's really a lot of novel approaches to um, being much more targeted with therapies and, and being very um uh, thoughtful about how to try to you know, design therapies to um, get around some of these, you know, tumor microenvironment issues and not just go at it with sort of a, you know, blunt force trauma, if you will, and, and to be really thoughtful about how these cells are engineered. Issues like the tumor microenvironment make this a particularly compelling approach for treating cancers. 
Uh, I'm wondering, though, do you see this type of approach having potential to treat other types of diseases more broadly? I would. I mean, I would think so. I mean, you heard Tim talk about some of the partnerships they have um, that are outside of the oncology indications, right? Uh, there was a Blue Rock Tim talked about for, for a partnership around induced polyprone stem cells, uh, which is what Blue Rock and, and I guess Bayer are, are working on. Um, you talk, he talked about his partnership with Spark Therapeutics, which obviously is, is in the you know, eye disease space. Um, they have an approved gene therapy for, I believe it's a, a rare version of retinitis pigmentosa, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think what's, what's you know, really cool to me is the broad applicability of what Senti is doing in terms of a platform technology that can be applied across different therapeutic areas and indications within the sort of cell and gene therapy field. So still early days, but I, I think it's it's really fascinating the different avenues that uh, Senti is, is taking and, and, you know, how they're going about sort of developing partnerships for some of their non-core therapeutic areas. Um, which is, you know, a tried and true strategy for, for you know, building value uh, in, in a biotech company. Given this type of capability to build intelligence into therapies, what do you think it says about where we're heading with precision medicine? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think the jury is still out um, until we see clinical data uh, in many ways. But, you know, as, as you heard Tim say sort of towards the end of, of the show, right? I mean, he, he, he talked about his move from academia to industry, some of the rationale behind that because he was so excited about, you know, a lot of these novel advances that were taking place in this sort of you know, wave that the industry is riding, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think we're no question we're moving towards more of a precision or personalized based approach within the oncology field and, and other areas. You know, we're not there yet to a large degree, um, but, you know, we may very well look back in you know 50 or 100 years and say, you know, this concept of treating folks with chemotherapy was was sort of, you know, outrageous because uh, it was such a blunt instrument and it wipes out all your healthy cells along with uh, disease cells. But obviously, you know, the best we've had for, for a long time. But, um, yeah, I think what what companies like Senti are doing is, 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 is really cool, very cutting edge um, and holds a tremendous amount of promise. Well, until next time. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to bioverge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective. All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, Neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results.